you know, kids uh, reveal a lot about yourself as a parent. If you watch them grow, because a lot of times they mimic you. And sometimes they mimic things about you that um, you don't want them to mimic. And sometimes they mimic cute things and fun little things. And, and uh, it's, it's just them observing and watching. And as little kids, that's what they think is important. Or that's how you do things. Uh, when Jordan, our oldest, was like four or five, he might have shared this here before, but uh, we gave him a little plastic tool set, you know, the screwdriver pliers, you know. And I was working on something, and all of a sudden Jordan was there with his plastic screwdriver, and and he was trying to do a screw, and he was making this grunting noise, and he was going, "Oh my!" So then I went back, and I was working on something, and this is you know, well before you had you know, power, everything, and I'm undoing this screw, and it's really tight, and all of a sudden I go, and it was like, oh. That's it. <laughs> and I make noises when I'm trying to do something that causes strain. I have a friend who, uh, she was telling about how she would always, when she got done baking or doing something in the kitchen, she would always leave the door of the oven open just to crack. And one time her husband said, why do you do that? Mom did. I always assumed it was, you know, some way of maybe protecting the oven or, you know, it cools down faster and it helps the oven and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and so she got curious and she called her mom. Hey, mom, I've got a question for you. Why do you always, when you guys not making leave the door of the oven open? She's like, I don't know. My mom did. So now mom calls her mom, so grandma, and says, Mom, why do you always, why do you always leave the oven door open? Oh, back when I was growing up, there was a heat source in the kitchen. As you got done baking, you cracked the oven open enough to let the heat into the kitchen. Oh. We learned things. We catch things more than we are taught. You know, we, we hear that phrase, more things are caught than taught. And there's a phrase, practice what you preach, because, you know, a lot of times it's really easy as a parent or anybody in a position of some kind of authority or some kind of leadership role to tell people what to do, but then it's a lot harder to practice what you want them to do so the point is, do your actions match up to your words? And your actions, where, where do they come from? Your belief system, how you do things, why you believe a certain way, where does that come from? Last week we began talking about the main thing that there are so many things that are important in our society or that seem important that we get distracted and 
if we look at the history of the Israelites or the church, it's all about, part of that history is all about people cruising along and they get distracted and they start focusing on something other than what is the main thing or the most important thing and then they get themselves in trouble. And then God misplans and reminds them what is important and brings them back. I think it's interesting that as we talk about good versus evil and God and Satan and all that kind of stuff and all that Satan does, I, I don't think Satan's goal is to get all of us to worship him. That's not his goal. His goal is just to get us off course enough that we don't focus on the main thing. And we talked last week again talked about our our, our core values, and we, we talked about how it's important to be a healthy church, and how for Paul, part of being a healthy church, as we looked at the first Corinthians, is being uh, unified and having the same mind, and as we looked at our core values last week of, you know, God's word, and love, and transformation, and fellowship, and being spirit-led, and worship, and prayer, and getting go, uh, going, that those are important things to set a foundation to help us stay true to what is the main thing for us. And because of time, we didn't get to focus really on what that main thing is. And for us, our mission is really our main thing, and that is impacting people with the love of Jesus Christ in this life. At the heart of our mission as a church is the great command. Love God by heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The other part of the heart of our mission is the great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So, if we're going to accomplish our mission and uh, love people on the journey of life, and we're going to go and make disciples, we should be asking ourselves the question, what is a disciple? Now, the dictionary says that a disciple is one who embraces and assists in the spreading of teachings of another. A disciple, in the tradition of the Bible, is one who follows in the footsteps of a rabbi or a teacher. In Jesus' day, there were different rabbis, there were different holy men, and they had followers, and these followers were called in Hebrew, the Talmudim, and they were ones who followed after their religious leaders. And religious leaders tried to get as many followers as possible, because the more followers they had, the more clout they had in the religious community. How many Facebook followers do you have? How many Twitter or Instagram followers do you have? I have a friend who has written a book, he's a pastor, and before he can get published, he has to have so many followers on his Instagram or his Facebook. Because it's the number of followers. He's got He's got people who are listening to him, and a book's not going to sell if you don't have people listening to you. In the Greek, the root word 
where disciple means to learn, to increase in knowledge, to learn by use and practice, to develop habits. So a disciple is a learner, but not just a learner that sits and reads or listens. A disciple is a learner that learns by doing also. Today we don't grasp as much what it means to be a disciple because we have so many voices coming at us. I mean, it's non-stop the number of people that are speaking to us. We can go and listen to all kinds of people on the internet and be discipled by many. But in the reality, Disciple is being discipled. It's all about a relationship between a disciple and a master. And it's all about a deep and fully embracing relationship. It is something that would transform the disciples' lives. The goal of the disciple was to become to become as close of a clone to the teacher, to the rabbi, as humanly possible. So you couldn't listen to a bunch of voices. You focused on one and one in that direction. Being a disciple is less about what I learned more about who I become. There's a Jewish saying that says this, a disciple is covered in the dust of his or her master. The word that, that phrase comes from is that in, back in the, the, in the time of Jesus and the time of disciples and rabbis, they would walk places and they had lots of gravel roads. And so as they walked, they would kick up the dust as you're walking. And if you were a disciple, you were that close that the dust from your mentors, from your rabbi, your teachers, walking would land on you. That's how close you were. So a disciple is covered in the dust. The question that I want to ask today is, do we as disciples of Jesus follow a body, remain in Jesus so closely that we are covered in the dust of his feet? The Apostle Paul, he was this amazing Jewish man, as we know, he was well educated, came from a well to do family, and he adopted the religious doctrines of the Pharisees, and he chose to go to the academy of Gamaliel, who was a rabbi, one of the well, most well known rabbis of that era. Paul chose to go there, and he was following in the footsteps of his rabbi. Jesus showed up. 
We know on the road to Damascus, right? The light came on, he was sold to death. And Paul changed direction. He changed who his rabbi was. He went from following Gamaliel to now he was going to follow Jesus. He wanted the dust of Jesus on him. This is why Paul says a couple of places in his writing, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul so followed Jesus closely that he could say to others, follow me because I have the dust of the rabbi on me. Follow Let's turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 22, and this is where Jesus calls his first disciples. Starting with verse 18, it says this, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus was different from the other rabbis. He didn't compete to try to get as many followers as possible. In fact, he went and chose his followers. And in Jesus' time, this was rare and not the norm. Jesus was intentional. He said to Simon, Peter, and Andrew, James, and John, follow me. I mean, this creates the question, why would these fishermen jump up and follow Jesus? Oh. Maybe it was because they recognized him. Maybe they heard the stories because this isn't long after when Jesus comes out of the wilderness. Remember, he was in the wilderness for 40 days. He was tempted. He comes out, and what does he do? He starts proclaiming the good news of Jesus. He starts doing miracles. So they probably heard about this. Here comes this Jesus who has been doing these miracles. And maybe it was because and when we look at Luke's account of this story, Luke also adds that they had been out all night fishing, not getting anything, and then this Jesus comes up and says, hey, don't throw your nets out into the water again. Sure. We'll do that. We've heard about your miracle stories. We know you're a rabbi, a teacher, so we'll go and do that. And so they go and they toss their nets in the water, and lo and behold, their nets are 
filled to overflowing, you got to get help to haul them in. Maybe, just maybe, they didn't work. When they left everything and went, they had little idea of what they were doing. They had no idea what following Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus was going to entail. None. They saw him do works and miracles. They heard him speak and thought, man, this guy's an amazing speaker. And now he says, follow me. And they drop everything and follow, not knowing really what that means. These gentlemen, they were fishermen, they were probably educated men. I mean, sometimes we get this picture of fishermen as being clueless, but if you think about it, they're running a business, it's no different than any other blue-collar business owner that we would know about here today, meaning they, they knew how to read, they knew how to write, they probably knew a couple of different languages because not only was there Aramaic, but they had Greek languages being spoke, so they probably knew a couple of different languages. They attended the synagogue, they knew the scripture, But what they knew came from the Pharisees. You see, as a little Jewish boy, a child would hear at home, you would hear the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and King David and Moses. They would hear the stories that were told. And then as the boys got older and started learning to read and write, the boys would go to Torah school. They would memorize the Torah. They would take it in, memorize it. So they knew it, and then if they were fortunate, and when they got to be 12, 13, or 14, they would move on and go to school where they would learn how to reason. How do they take this knowledge of the Torah? Now how do they learn what it means and do reasoning? And then if they were good at that, then they would go on and find a rabbi and follow that rabbi. But somewhere along the line, these men, Andrew, Simon, James, John, they probably like, no, the rabbi thinks I'm free. I'm going to fish. I'm going to make a living. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to take with my family. This is all good. And then Jesus comes along and he says, follow me. So these two words, follow me, changed their life. So if we are going to follow Jesus, somewhere along the line, you and I heard Jesus call to us, follow me. Whether it's at a Bible camp, or it's in your home, you grew up in, or maybe at some meeting, or somewhere along the line, you heard Jesus say, follow me, and you chose to follow. And it required a response from us. Yes, I'm going to follow. And that response to follow 
means that we also need to know what we're getting ourselves into. It's really good to say yes to Jesus and follow him, but when we see in the Gospels and the story, there were some that when Jesus really started talking about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, they walked a different way. So there's three questions that come out of the text for me today concerning my response to Jesus' invite to follow me. The first question is this. Have I dropped everything? For Peter and Andrew and James and John, the response may seem like a simple one, but it wasn't a totally simple one because um, they did say yes. In fact, Matthew 4 20, it says immediately they left their nets and followed him. Peter and Andrew left everything. Verse 22, we see uh, James and John, they leave everything. Nets and boats, their fathers. You see, when they left their nets and boats, they were leaving their source of income. They were leaving their identity, their fishermen. They were leaving all that they knew. All they knew. It's not like today where we have the internet we can see. All they knew was their town, their community, and this lifestyle of being a fisherman. And by leaving their father, they were saying goodbye to their family unit, family unit, hugely important. They were leaving by, uh, they were leaving their community. They were leaving everything. By dropping everything and following, they said, I trust Jesus. When I leave everything behind and follow Jesus, what I'm really saying is, I want to be so intimate with the Savior that he dropped behind me. If I don't drop everything, if I don't say, I'm, I'm following you, I'm dropping everything, what I'm saying is this. I'm saying, you know, I like it, Jesus. You make sense to me? Your way of life. See, the dilemma is that for a lot of us, we've said, yes, I follow you to the teaching. It makes me feel good, but we haven't said yes to other practices. Maybe that are more important. I'm going to trust Jesus. The second question is, am I letting Jesus The heart about being part about being a follower and disciple of Jesus is letting him change me. In verse 19 of Matthew 4, it says, Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. When Jesus says, I will make you, it's like I'm going to change you. Notice Jesus promises that he will make them fishers of men by saying yes to the invitation. I'm saying yes to the change, becoming a disciple is one who has the dust of Jesus on them. Look at in Scripture, all that talks about the change that happens when I say yes to Jesus. Romans 8, 29, we are being conformed into the image of Christ. Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17, the old is gone, the new is come. Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. James 1, trials and temptations are to mature and strengthen your faith. And do I need to go on? Jesus takes four fishermen and he makes them to be fishers of men that transforms the world. Jesus' invitation is to follow me. Is an invitation that he is making to you. I want to make you a fisher. I want to make you a disciple. I want to make you into somebody that transforms your The third question is this. Am I going? The last part of this invitation, Jesus says, I will make you a, make you fishers of men. But we know, if you're going to be a fisherman, you don't just sit on the shore, right? If you're a fisherman, you have to get into your boat. You have to push your boat out into the lake. You have to find the spot where the fish are. You have to take your net, throw it into the water. Then you have to gather your net and pull them in. Then you have to go back into shore and unload your fish. Every part of that process is intentional to catch fish. To be a fisher of men, you need to get to your boat. You need to get into your canoe. You need to find where the fish are. You need to cast the net of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you need to pull that net in. And whatever's in that net, you need to make disciples of. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. We know this. Jesus says to them, Authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. The key verb here in this verse is go. It's getting into our boats. The purpose of discipleship is making disciples. The purpose of a follower of Jesus is to make other followers of Jesus. If you're lacking purpose in life, there it is. If you're if you're a stay-at-home mom, your purpose is to make disciples. If you're a business owner, your purpose is to make disciples. If you're a farmer, your purpose is to make disciples. If no matter what your vocation is, your purpose is to make disciples. Acts 1 8. Is it Jesus said, I'll come to the disciples after three years? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. You will be my 
Talked about over the last year or so about faithful homes, and the principle behind faithful homes is this: is that the church equips people so that they can go make disciples, starting in the home. The only way faithful homes are going to work is if you are a disciple. If you have the dust of the rabbi on you. You are saying, I'm getting rid of it all. Jesus, change me. Whatever needs to be changed in me, I'm going to do it. Jesus is not looking for perfect followers of Jesus, of him. He's looking for those who are willing to drop and just move. Even if you don't have all the answers, even if you don't know what the final outcome is, that's not important. What's important is that you get close to Jesus so his dust as he's walking is on you. I've said this many times. The person that I'm talking to all together. They're like, I'm, I'm really wanting to learn. I really want to grow in this area. I'm in. I'm going with that person. But part of this evangelism cohort that I mentioned before, one of the things they do is your evangelism temperature. On a scale of one to ten, where does evangelism fit in your life? Is it is it ten you're you're evangelizing all the time, or is it one you don't even think about? It, not even on your radar. For the cohort, they don't care whether you're one to ten. They care about it. How do you do with one to ten? That would be my thing about discipleship. Where the dust of Jesus? Where are you on a scale of one to ten? Are you ten? You're covered in the dust of Jesus. Or are you one? If I look hard enough, I can find a couple of dust particles. I don't care where you are. What can we do to get just a little more dust of Jesus on you? I can't answer that question. That's a question.
question that you need to But if we are going to go make disciples, we have to be